Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. True crime today. This is the ongoing story of a small Idaho town and its residents. A tightly knit community that hasn't seen a murder since 2015. An environment where one thought they could feel safe and secure. Until a quadruple homicide stole the lives of four young souls on a mid-November evening leaving far more questions than answers. Where will the investigation lead, and how do we get there? This is the University of Idaho Murders podcast. Four killed, for what? Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tony Bruschi. Thank you for listening. Be sure to press subscribe wherever you download podcasts to not miss any episodes and breaking updates as we have them on this case. You can follow me on Twitter at Tony B. Pod for updates on the case off the air and thoughts as well. Today, we're going to be joined by Joni E. Johnson. She is a clinical and forensic psychologist and a licensed private investigator. We're going to dive into the psychology of a killer, uh, allegedly Brian Koberger, and take a look back further before the case. What kind of things were going through one's mind leading up to this? And even before that, way before June of uh, last year, where it appears, according to the affidavit, that he began stalking the girls. What was happening years before that? What was happening in childhood? What kind of mind is molded into this direction? Or is it a molding? Or is it more so uh, almost a a de-evolving of thinking into such dark directions that would lead someone uh, down this path. We'll get to that in just a a moment. First, I want to play for you some audio. Uh, Just uh, the uh, other night, last night, Steve Gonzalez speaking uh, on News Nation uh, with Ashley Banfield about the case uh, and giving some thoughts on specifically if if he could trade places, if he could have his his daughter or daughters, as he described them. He was speaking of both Kaylee and Maddie as his daughters. If they could trade places with Brian Koberger, who, by the way, behind bars, it's kind of cush. 
Yeah, I mean, this I, I can see being enraged as a father where your daughter's dead, but this guy is behind bars and he has internet access and he can talk to people on the phone and he can watch TV and they'll even bring him his vegan meals. Granted, it may just be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but I didn't. I mean, I I, I, I have I have issue with the let's uh, let's bow down to your dietary restrictions or choices, really. Uh, and I'm nothing against being a vegan or a vegetarian. Totally fine with that. But when you're behind bars and being charged with first degree murder, I have no problem with the justice system saying we don't care what your dietary choices are. Here's what you're going to eat. Enjoy or die. So as silly as that is, we're talking about a diet here. I can just, I can understand his fear, his feeling, his, his anger at this. Here's what he said last night uh, to Ashley Banfield on that subject. Our daughters could switch places with him. And I'm saying Maddie is my daughter. Um, we do it in a heartbeat. If they could sit there and have three squares, uh, a place to live and we could call them, we could write yeah. them letters. They could watch TV. They could go, I would love if Maddie and uh, Kaylee were doing life in prison right now. At least we could talk to them. That's not. They'd be breathing. A punishment equivalent to being killed. 100,000% agree. I think anyone who is a parent or, you know, has children or, or knows children, has children in their life, nieces, nephews, whatever, you'd feel the exact same way. Like, screw your diet. Here's a nice, juicy hamburger. It was formerly a hockey puck, but it's meat. Enjoy. Steve has also been a very outspoken individual on this case, and rightfully so. His daughter was murdered, and he was being critical of uh, the police. Many of us were. Many of us also said at the same time, I hope we're wrong. Let's eat some crow. Prove us wrong. Prove me wrong. He said that to him multiple times, and now that he has been, standing up and saying, yeah, I was wrong, but you know what? That's good. They hit a home run, man. That affidavit is impressive. And I'm glad to be wrong. I wanted to be wrong. And I told them to their face. I looked them in their eyes and said, prove me wrong. And all is forgiven. And here we are. And all is forgiven. And I'll say that on camera. And I'll tell everybody. I have my person now. We have our person of interest, our defendant. And we will go after him. And he better be ready. That's Steve Gonzalez talking last night to Ashley Banfield on News Nation. Let's go to our guest, Joni E. Johnson. She's a clinical and forensic psychologist, a licensed private investigator. And we're going to dive deeper into the psychology of a killer, you know, allegedly Brian Koberger here. Uh, Joni, when you look at this character and, and you wonder how did this person go from living a fairly productive life, um, you know, functioning in society enough to to get this far in his education and such. How far back do signs emerge that there's a problem with this individual, that they can't quite handle life uh, in a healthy way, such as many others do? Because it takes a very special type of dark person to commit these crimes. When someone looks back, where do these signs begin to emerge? I think you're right about that, Tony. I mean, I think it's important to point out that we can sometimes and often do seem, see signs of trouble or emotional pain or psychological problems early on. But you're right. That absolutely does not mean we can predict 
who's going to act violently as an adult. Um, but some of the things that you might expect, I think, in this particular case would be somebody who, um, you know, has some problems socially from a young age, um, has a lot of anger about that, um, somebody who has trouble fitting in. And because of that, somebody who's probably bright, but somebody who begins to channel their anger into kind of intellectual um, mean modes, meaning they start fantasizing about, you know, getting revenge, getting what they want that they're not getting, you know, dealing with their frustration. Instead of finding ways to do it in positive ways, they either try to tamp it down or they start fantasizing about what they would do. And oftentimes that can increase during adolescence when you have all the hormones of puberty, um, particularly if they begin to have difficulties socially with, you know, whoever they're attracted to, men or women. Um, and so you see this kind of evolution over time. And, you know, that can, of course, then result in, you know, this fantasy. Oftentimes you see a trigger. Um, so not, you know, we oftentimes hear about people snapping. Well, they don't really snap necessarily, but they're oftentimes have had a you know, history of fantasizing about doing something like this. And there will be some event um, either internally or externally that then pushes them from fantasy to action. And that, that's an interesting thing to move from fantasy to action, because I'm assuming for, for many people, you know, you can have those sort of thoughts growing up. I, I think probably a lot of people do here and there, especially when they're feeling rage and, and most don't turn into a killer or translate that fantasy into an actual action. And, and I agree something like this. It's not as if something that night pushed him over the edge and he said, I'm just I'm doing this. Something like this seems very methodically planned out. So there was this was a long term mindset uh, or uh, path. I don't know if goal is the right word, but there was something that made that transition happen from this is just my anger and my frustration playing out in my mind at society or people who don't seem to understand me or I don't understand them or we just don't seem to 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 understand each other uh, into this sort of uh, a scenario, how does that happen? Is that often like a single triggering event or, or is that something where over the years, one's mind just slowly devolves, if you will, uh, into slowly the, the, uh, the boundaries of, of what's okay and not okay to, to become reality for one. Well, I think it can be both to the extent that, you know, it's interesting. There's some research on, kind of homicidal thoughts and it actually most people at some point have you know had this fantasy or this brief thought of wanting to kill somebody and of sure. course that kind of makes sense when we think about getting in an argument or some kind of dispute or just being mad at somebody and just having that kind of fleeting thought that's a relatively normal um it's not normal though when we start you know planning it we start yeah. thinking about how would i do it mm -hmm. you know, what would that involve and then over time, it tends to become more frequent that we're thinking about it. Maybe we're starting to do some research on it. Um, we're starting to look at, you know, how we would gather the means to do it and those kinds of things. And now, you know, we're, we're kind of crossing a line, not necessarily into action right now, but we're, we're certainly crossing a line that most people don't, you know, which is moving again from kind of fantasizing or thinking about it hypothetically to starting to planning it. Um, and so you'll see that process that, that can kind of evolve over a relatively long period of time. 
Um, and then what we do see is oftentimes there is some event, you know, oftentimes it's an argument or it's a breakup or it's some kind of loss of, of self-esteem. Something happens, they get negative feedback from their professor or from their boss. It doesn't have to be a major one. Um, and maybe they've been, again, toying around with it. This planning has gotten bigger and bigger, but they're not really ready to pull the trigger. And then something happens that to them, it's almost like a narcissistic injury, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of assault to their self-esteem or their status. And that seems to be the impetus for that action. Where is that rooted, though? What I mean, what kind of emotion is that thought process rooted in? The thing I, I would, I guess, try to make a reference to would be maybe someone, uh, and this would be a nonviolent version of this, but preparing for something, maybe someone's in, in a relationship and they know it's going south and they're they're beginning to prepare for the possibility of a divorce emotionally, financially, in no way a violent thing, not a I'm going to kill my spouse. It's more so an exit plan. Uh, and, and that may, you know, ruminate for a long time and you may start to, uh, you know, bring together resources to eventually uh, make that happen uh, because of, of that planning and that thought process. Is it the similar sort of thing where that's based on, on fear of what am I going to do and, and just self-preservation? Do they believe what they're doing when they, they move into that mode as being a self-preserving action or, or, or what is that? So I think, just to make sure I understand your yeah. question, um, in, in a situation like this, I don't think this is a fear-based reaction. I okay. think it's a, ra- a rage-based reaction. Okay. So it's almost an attempt, I think, to uh, kind of assert control. Okay. Um, and that can be, you know, perhaps in reaction to a history of feeling out of control mm-hmm. or, you know, not in control. But I don't think this is yeah, a survival thing. It's more like a conquering thing. Like I am now going to show people whether they find, you know, I'm not saying he wanted to be found out, Uh but I'm going to know now that I was the hunter. I was the bully. I was the, the victor in the situation. And, you know, maybe, you know, again, I'm I'm using a lot of hypotheticals here because we don't know a lot about this person. If again, he is the person who committed these murders, yeah. um, you know, maybe all these women did not pay attention to me. They rebuffed me. They didn't give me the attention I wanted. I'm going to show them who's boss. I'm going to show them that I really am stronger, more powerful than they are. And so, you know, we don't know. One of the big wild cards here, of course, Tony, as you know, is we don't really know if there was any kind of connection yeah. between this person, again, if he is the person who, you know, made did these murders and the victims. Um, but in his mind, I think there is some connection, um, could, you know, yeah. whether it's that this is kind of a murder by proxy, yeah. you know, these people represent yeah. something that I couldn't have or whatever, or if in fact he, you know, saw one of the women or whatever, we don't know that yet, but I, I think they mean something to him and that, that this was targeted as opposed to, you know, being a crime of opportunity. Yeah. Th- that's what I, I've been the whole time from the very beginning, I've been in the mindset that this is someone who likely has if this is in fact the the killer, uh, is someone who has an issue with women, maybe doesn't really know them much at all, more than even just an acquaintance, and maybe they did rebuff him. These women, obviously, they're very attractive young ladies. I'm sure they're rebuffing men every day, all day, that are trying to hit on them. So he was probably just one in a line of many, but to him, it meant much something much more deep, something more meaningful than just, one of the girls saying, no, thanks. 
Uh, to him, it was more of a rejection, if in fact it's him, a, a rejection of character and, and and more so these women being a representation of all of the women collectively who may have treated him that way throughout his life, but reasonably so, uh, considering probably the the manner of his, his approach and, and his actions. I would certainly suspect that it's hard for you and I, or really anyone, to imagine anybody doing anything. Yeah you know, that terrible to someone that they would feel justified in, you know, stabbing somebody to death multiple, you know, stabbing them multiple times, uh, and, but, you know, because of the actions of that person. I think there definitely is likely some symbolism here. Yeah. Um, you know, this person becomes, or these people become the target or the symbol of all of his pain, all of his rejection, all of his anger. And that's, this is what happens. When, when someone makes their plan that they're going to do this in a targeted way. Uh, and I, I believe we're starting to learn more about the stalking type behavior that was likely going on. Do they not see the end picture or do they think that they are smarter than everyone else? They're getting away. They will get away with something because they're smarter than everyone else. And they're doing the right thing in their mind. And it's a justified thing that they need to do for themselves and for society in, in their mindset. Is, is that what we're talking about? I think in general, most individuals who would commit a crime like this, which of course is a very rare crime. Yeah. Let's not, let's not forget sure. that. Thank, uh, good. They, thank God. They, yeah. Thank God. They certainly <laughs> understand that mm -hmm. this is not the right thing to do from a societal point of view. Now they may justify it mm -hmm. in their mind they may rationalize it in their mind. There's something that um, a lot of people who commit violent crimes do is called neutralization. Mm -hmm. You know, it'll be either this person deserved it or it wasn't that bad or, yeah, you know, I was victimized. So this, this is a reason I'm victimizing this person. That rationalization or neutralization isn't saying I think it was right, you know, in, from a moral standpoint, but I'm justified in doing it. You know, I deserve to do this. So there is an awareness from a legal standpoint, right, that this is not a good thing to do. This mm -hmm. is not going to be applauded, you know, by anybody in society. Sure, sure. After they commit something like this, is their mindset still the same uh, in, in most cases? Are they still thinking that was justified at least to themselves and they deserved it at least to themselves? Or, or is there kind of a tipping point where once they realize, oh, shit, look what I just did, uh, no, probably not the same way most individuals would because most would never do this. But is there like a, an awakening of, okay, I guess I didn't uh, realize that I'd be feeling this way or that, oh my gosh, this much attention is going to become my, it's going to come my way. I was not prepared to be able to, to evade that. Well, two things, you know, one you mentioned a minute ago about just, you know, the, the, the thinking going into this and, you know, not getting caught. Or am I so smart that I'm not going to get caught? Um, that is true sometimes. But I, I'm always amazed at, you know, people, inmates I've talked to who've committed premeditated crimes, very serious ones, even, some, you know, planning them out for months or whatever. And there being this kind of like the the crime is the end, mm -hmm. like they're not no, not thinking out what's going to happen next. Yeah. It's almost like there's so much time and energy spent on the planning and or the stalking or the, you know, the obsessive details of how I'm going to do this. And um, that it's kind of like that's the end of it. Sure. And and, and some, you'll see these kind of stupid mistakes being made sometimes where you kind of go, weren't you thinking about afterwards? 
you know, that that you did this or you did that or you drove the car to the crime scene or you, whatever, you know. Um, and there's kind of like this blank look sometimes. Sure. Like, no, I really wasn't thinking about afterwards. Now, I don't think that most people ever, or anybody really wants to get caught. So there is a sense that I'm going to be smart enough. I'm going to be tricky enough. I'm going to be you know, well-planned enough that I'm not going to get caught. So that's the first part that you, I didn't answer earlier that you addressed. And then mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, in terms of this kind of awakening, I think it depends. I mean, I've, there've been a lot of people talking about this person again, if he is the the killer yeah. and what you know what kind of personality disorder he might have and you know we don't know that I can't answer that I haven't evaluated this person mm-hmm. um so if this person for example met the cr- criteria for a psychopath we wouldn't expect him to have much emotion at all about it mm-hmm. you know it'd be like you know I don't have any I don't care about this person so I don't I don't feel bad about it um this was a fun thing to do or this was a thrill or whatever if this person is not a psychopath if this person did this for other reasons this person you know has other personality dynamics they may in fact be struggling with it. Be kind of like, oh, I planned this. It was kind of like a project for me. I compartmentalized all my feelings. Now that I've done it, it's hitting me. Or I'm scared I'm going to get caught. And I didn't prepare for that. So I think, you know, when he is evaluated from a mental health standpoint, which I'm sure he will be at some point, we'll hopefully get some more insight into, you know, his thinking before that and now what what he's thinking now. That was something that I was wondering about when I was reading uh, the research study he was working on uh, when he was asking for convicted felons to talk about their feelings and and the emotional process they were going through when they had committed their last crimes. And it was almost just chilling reading the questions he was asking. Now, as a criminology student, they, they do seem to be it seems like a fairly legitimate study, it, quite honestly, as creepy as it is. But at the same point, it was almost uh, to, I guess, the layman, you look at it and go, oh, my God, was he trying to get advice and and directive from, I mean, the best of the best of the worst uh, on on how he should be feeling if he were to pull this off? How did that strike you when you saw those questions on that research project as it relates to what he's accused of doing? Well, one is you're absolutely right. It's impossible to ignore. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is, particularly in light of what happened. Um, there's always going to be this temptation for all of us to do this Monday morning quarterbacking because sure. we know the end result. Mm-hmm. So it's hard not to go back and kind of go, okay, here was the roadmap, right? Here was the roadmap yeah. right here. Yeah. I'm not sure we would have think that if we didn't know the end of the story. Yeah. At the same time, I have to say, when I read some of those questions, I'm thinking, you know, having worked with so many offenders, um, violent offenders, if I was going to do a general research study on their thoughts and feelings, I don't think I would pick a lot of these questions. Yeah. Um, there were so many questions about premeditation, yeah. for example. And that was struck me because even though you're absolutely right, I mean, if you're a criminology student, you're going to be studying the criminal mind, hopefully. Um, it's like most of the, of the people that I see who commit violent crimes, they aren't planning it out, right? It's, they're, they're, it's impulsive. Yeah. They're in a fight and they murder somebody. You know, they're they're in an argument and they do something. And so I think there there was something that struck me about the questions he was asking. You know, how did you select your target? Well, again, most people, well, my wife and I were fighting and I beat her up. You know, yeah. that was the target. Um, I, you know, there aren't these kind of well thought out plans. And that did strike me. And I, it's hard for me not to think there was something very self-interested for him 
Yeah. In these questions. It, it, it did. It, it very much felt like he was trying to create a guidebook. And what ran through my mind is, and who knows what type of personality disorder this man may have, uh, but sometimes, uh, or quite frequently, you have individuals who literally to survive have to mimic what other people are doing because they are missing something uh, or something is blocking their way of feeling emotion. And and they want to fit into society. So a lot of times it's, well, I see, and they learn over time after being rejected or uh, being felt odd or left out that they have to try and conform and well, how do people react when this happens? How do people react when that happens? And you can learn, kind of, um, and you can mimic and you can kind of fit in, but still feel kind of an emptiness if you're truly not feeling those emotions of empathy, of, of you know, a whole, you know, corticopia of things uh, that you view the rest of society as feeling, but you don't even know what that truly feels like. What I'm wondering is, what was he looking at this from such a cold perspective of he wanted to get into this world of criminology and what better way to really be good at it than understanding the criminals who commit those offenses. Was that the, the, the weird break point where he was thinking, well, I don't know how this would feel to do this. Uh, and I, I would like to know how this feels and the ultimate way of trying to feel it would be to actually act it out. I think that is certainly one possibility. I mean, I do believe the questions in that um, research study were significant to him. Yeah. I think he had a personal interest in those. Now, what that means, we can come up with a couple of different scenarios. Sure. One may be, you know, how can, I want to learn from people who've done these things. Yeah, I want to study people who've done these things. Um, I want to understand how other people feel. That certainly is one possibility. The other possibility is, is he conflicted about doing this? So is he trying to figure out, are other people feeling the same way I'm feeling? Mm -hmm. Or do they not feel that way? You know, how are they, and how do they handle those feelings? I really want to do this, but I'm having second thoughts about it, or I'm, I'm not sure if I, if I want to do this. So there's a lots of different explanations mm -hmm. that we could put on why these questions are significant to him. And one of them could be that this is somebody who, you know, is absent some of the empathy and some of the emotional, you know, abilities that a lot of us have. Mm -hmm. And so he's trying to figure out how other people do feel. Um, those are the questions I think we're going to have to get from him himself, you know, from him. Sure. Um, but I absolutely believe that there is there are some significance for him personally in those questions because they're, they're just they're just such a, as you mentioned, they're just almost like a roadmap yeah. in terms of him, what, what comes afterwards. With with someone like this, uh, he, he, what is the likelihood that this was not the first time he committed a crime uh, of this nature or, or, or some sort of violence that maybe was not reported or caught? That is a really interesting question. Um, and I can really just tell you based on my sense sure. um, of this, um, I would be surprised if he had committed other violent offenses. Now, would I believe that he's potentially harassed other women, that he's bothered people, that he's been awkward in terms of his interactions? Yes, that fits for me mm -hmm. um, because I think he, he is socially awkward. But I, I think this is somebody who does, who is pretty obsessive, yeah. you know, and pretty. And so, so to me, I can see this as being somebody who would have this fantasy for years and years and years, you know, and begin planning. And then this be some kind of culmination of that, mm -hmm. as opposed to this being his third, you know, third time he's done this. 
It's uh, it's interesting. I'm sure we're going to be learning a lot more here in the coming days. And as this uh, affidavit uh, has been released now, we'll be going through that. And uh, I, I'm, I'm curious to see how many of the questions we just asked may be answered. Joni Johnston, thank you for joining us. Joni, a clinical and forensic psychologist and licensed private investigator. The link for her is in our podcast descriptions. That's going to wrap up today's episode of the University of Idaho Murders podcast for Killed for What. Be sure to press subscribe wherever you download podcasts just to not miss any episodes of the program. You can get a commercial free experience when you subscribe through Apple Podcasts. That option is there for you. You can follow me on Twitter at Tony B Pod for more thoughts on this case and other updates off the air. Until next time, for all of us here at True Crime Today, and the University of Idaho Murders Podcast. I'm Tony Bruski. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.